starting verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send my angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Kind of seems like the tone just changed here, didn't it? And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. I could come into your midst in one moment and consume you. Do you hear that, the United States? In one moment, God says, I can come into your midst and in one moment consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Let's pray again. Father, we just ask again for the work of your precious Holy Spirit. Speak in our midst, Lord, that we would not only hear, but we would obey all that you ask us to do. For you love us enough, Lord, to teach us your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, A Bittersweet Command. A bittersweet command, and we'll look at three, as is normally my practice, sections, his direction, his destination, and our decision. We always have a decision to make, don't we? His direction, his destination, but our decision. God will, God can force anyone's hand to do anything, but he gives, an, he gives an opportunity. As Joshua later said, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. The choice is yours. The consequence will be yours. The blessing will be yours. But either way, the choice remains yours. The choice remains mine, that God gives us this free will opportunity. At first glance, this discussion, now if you were here with us uh, last week, we know that the previous state was that uh, Israel had molded themselves a golden calf. They had decided while Moses was gone for uh, 40 days and 40 nights that collectively, but there were specifically some ringleaders of the rebellion, uh, a group of men that uh, were most rebellious. Uh, all the people were rebellious. Aaron uh, was in a state of weakness, frustration, and lax, and he kind of gave in to the rebellion. Uh, but collectively, the people were rebellious, even though some were uh, completely defiant. The rest had kind of grown tired of waiting for Moses to come back, and so they went along with the flow. They went with the crowd. Well, if everybody else is you know, choosing things other than the Lord, must be okay. And so Collectively, they all went that direction, uh, the idol worship of the golden calf, uh, the mixing in it with, uh, remember they had the feast of the Lord, so there was a little bit of uh, good stuff mixed in with the idolatry, which Satan always wants to make sure that you, you still can feel good enough about yourself that, uh, hey, you're doing some good things too. 
And there was all this idolatry, and it didn't just uh, involve worshiping the calf, but all kinds of immorality went along with it. And Moses, of course, comes to the bottom of the mountain. He is furious, as God is even more furious, because God said, I will wipe them off the face of the earth. Moses pleads, your name would be stained. Please don't do this. The Egyptians will, uh, will say that this is what God intended. So Moses, representing the Lord, smashes the Ten Commandments at the base of the mountain. And then the children of Israel are made to drink the very gold dust. He grinds it into powder. They have to drink their own idolatry. And 3,000 are killed with the sword because there's a group that are even completely defiant. And uh, only death will end their rebellion. And this is where Moses then pleads with the Lord not to completely annihilate them, that he, if God would be willing to even take his name out of the Lamb's book of life, blot my name out that they would be saved, and God says, no, no, I'll relent. I will not take your name out. But he does plague the people that day with the death, with the judgment, with the drinking of the gold dust. And, and then <clears throat> Moses and the and the Lord continue to have a discussion about what next. There's been all this idolatry. There's been this uh, acquiescence of responsibility on Aaron's part, although uh, it, it appears that God quickly restores Aaron. But the people, God, this is, this is my own observation, God doesn't trust them. Because each step along the way, they've continued to complain even after God has intervened on their behalf, and they went from complaining to outright idolatry. And so God and Moses are having this, it's a prayer on Moses' part, talking to the Lord, and the Lord's saying, um, I don't want anything to do with them, but for your prayer and your sake, I'll spare them. But I'll keep my promise. At this first glance, it appears... At first glance, at first glance, it appears only a concession to Moses because God is still very angry with the people. You ever had your parents um, let you off the hook, but you can tell they're still not happy? You ever had that happen in your lifetime? I have. They've let you off the hook, but you can tell they're still very displeased. Now, unlike man, God can't sin. So when he's still displeased, he has every right to be displeased. He's displeased because although he's given them all of what they need, he knows they still don't want all of him. And he's still angry, but yet it seems as a concession. I'll concede to do the following. In his grace, he gives Moses who then turns and gives it to the people, some good news and some bad news. You ever had someone tell you, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news, right? The good news is, this is Moses then relaying what God told him to the people. Moses comes to the people and said, I've got some good news, I've got some bad news. Let's start with the good news. You're still going to be blessed. Oh, we're still going to be blessed. You're still going to go to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, at this point, they still were. That changes later. Got some good news. I, I'm going to let you know that God is still going to bless you all. 
you still be blessed. But the bad news is God isn't going with us. You know, the, the, as silent as it was right here, the silence there, the pillar of fire, the cloud by day that had been in their presence, that had been leading them, uh, as soon as that, that's removed, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? If God has a massive pillar of fire and a massive tower of, of cloud that he leads with, and you could see the presence, that type of presence of the Lord, and then it's removed. That's kind of scary, isn't it? And the good news is he also says, I'll send my angel to pave the way. Now, whether this angel is the Lord Jesus or an angel, I believe in this instance it is an angel, but again, I wouldn't debate over that. Either way, uh, the presence is going before them as opposed to with them. Now, having God go before you is far better than having no, no help from God at all. Because he says, that more good news here, I'm going to drive out all the enemies. That's good news, isn't it? If God says to you, I'm going to drive out all your enemies. Most of us would be, thumbs up. I'll drive out all your enemies. You're still going to a land flowing with milk and honey. I'll send my angel before you to prepare the way, but I'm not going with you. Now, that should concern people, and it does concern them. We'll get to that. Oh, and one more piece of good news, Moses might add. By God not going with us, he will not consume us on the way. And that's more good news. Because if God were to go with us, he has said at any moment he could consume us all. Because he's still very displeased with where your hearts are at. I'm still going to bless you. It's as if he's saying, I'm still going to bless you, but I won't kill you. But I would if I were there with you. So I'm going to withdraw my presence, but still fulfill my promise in your life. But I'm going to withdraw my presence. And really, he's fulfilling the promise to who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where he had made the covenant. What seems both a begrudging blessing and a harsh rejection. They're kind of juxtaposed together there. A begrudging blessing, a harsh rejection, is actually, again, what it seems and what it actually is, is actually, this is what it actually is. It's actually the mercy of God, the grace of God, the wisdom and even magnificence of God in convicting the hearts of the people to bring them to the place of surrender and commitment that God desires and they should be at. Does that make sense? You've heard of the term reverse psychology. Now, God doesn't use reverse psychology. Uh, he doesn't really play, get, he, but he does know what makes people tick, what they really think, what their real motivations are, and what it takes to turn a person to the place that they need to be at to see reality. Because we don't really see reality unless God reveals reality, do we? We have our 
conception of reality, again, as I mentioned in a previous study, I can't remember even last week's, but you know, God will show us, again, Peter at one time thought he loved Jesus this much. Jesus said, no, you don't. You don't love me this much. You love me about this much. And to prove it to you, I'll let you fall flat on your face to show you how much more you need to grow, how much more you need to turn your heart. So God will say something that on the surface sounds very almost contradictory. I'm going to bless you, but I'm not going to go with you or I would kill you. Because it really opens eyes and really opens ears. Just, just the fact that Moses transferred this information would have you adjust your ears and say, did I catch that? I don't even know if I understand that. You're going to still bless us, but you're not coming with us or you would consume us. And thus a bittersweet command to go up, to grow, to move forward, but I'm not coming. See, the love of God and the brilliance of God, and that would be an understatement, isn't it? The love of God and the brilliance of God is helping his people see his plan and their condition. How many of you want to know God's plan? You tr- I mean, you truly want to know God's plan for your life and your family. Not everybody wants to know that, by the way. A lot of people aren't interested in God's plan. As long as God would actually leave them alone, they're okay with that. But some people really do want to know God's plan and really do want to follow his plan. But even if that's what you desire, God still wants to show you with the mirror of his word where you're at. How would we, why would that be important? Well, how would we be able to make the right adjustments to his plan if we don't know where we're at? Right? I have GPS. It's good to know where I'm at to start the coordinates. If I don't know where I'm starting, it's really difficult to take the next steps. I need to know where I'm at to begin with. Oh, I'm supposed to, we're supposed to head to Nashville. Great. Am I in Texas? Am I in New Hampshire? Am I in Detroit? It matters where we're at at the moment you decide to go in a certain direction, doesn't it? And God says, yes. I'm going to give you my direction. I'm going to give you the destination where I want you to go, but we've got something to take, we've got some things to take care of in the heart before we go there. And he gives it in this really odd manner that would confound the hearer. But I think Moses knows what the Lord's getting at. He is going to get to the root of the problem in the heart with this bitter speech commandment. You know, Jesus. You know, I quote it often, John 15, 5. Jesus said, for without me, you can do nothing. If you don't have the presence of Christ, nothing. All the other benefits, I believe God wants them to come to the place to understand that all the benefits of God are not anywhere near as valuable as the presence of God. Amen? A lot of people love the benefits, pray for the benefits. God wants to bring them to the place where they pray for Him, not for the benefits. The benefits come, 
But that's not the focal point. Let's start and take a look here at his direction. And the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up. He says it again a second time. Go up to the land. Verse 3. Now he wants them to go up. And he says that I'll send my angel before you and I'll destroy the enemies or, or pave the way in front of you. So we know that the direction is given by God and it's up. The way he wants us to go is up. The upward call in Christ Jesus. Going up. We're actually progressing, maturing. We're moving towards the presence of the Lord, not further away. Not back down to Egypt, which is a picture of the world. A dog returning to its own vomit, as Peter would say, uh, which is also in the Proverbs. So we're not going down or back. We're going up or forward. So we know the direction where God wants every one of his children to go is to grow and go in an upward motion, to continue to progress in the faith. The direction's mapped out by God, and even the success is guaranteed by God. Isn't that great? The success is guaranteed. I'll take care of the enemies. I'll send my angel before you. The emphasis that I'll do the work. I'll do the heavy lifting, but you follow the direction. Go in the direction I've told you to go. He's sending his angel, but he wants them to thirst for his own presence. I'll send my angel before you, but I I want to test the hearts of the people. I want to test the people's heart. Do they want just the guarantee or do they want me? Just the guarantee of getting there or do they want me? Do do they want just to know I'm saved or do they want to walk with me all the way into heaven like Enoch did, right? Enoch's life. He just walked up into heaven with the Lord. He had that relationship. Elijah caught up into heaven. How about you? Do you want to just, I just, as long as, you know, the, the, old, the old, I just want the little shack in glory. I'm okay. Let Chuck have the mansion. Let K.P. O'Hannon have it. Let the Apostle Paul have it. I'm, I'm satisfied with a phone booth as long as I'm there. Right? Do you want to walk with him and have his presence or just know, hey, he's, got it. He, he's going to take care of it. We, we've got all that we need. And again, the promised land, as, as has well been said, the promised land is a picture of the spirit-filled life. But it's not a poor application to also understand there is the promised land of heaven as well. And so both have some applicability And both, God wants us to desire, but he wants us to work our way there in the power and the presence of his spirit in our life. You know, Jesus, I love two of his names. I love all of his names, but two of his names are very comforting to me. Wonderful counselor and good shepherd. You guys like those names of of Christ? Wonderful counselor, because... Man's counsel will eventually fail you. Even a really good, wise man could fail you with counsel, but Jesus' counsel will never fail. Heaven and earth will pass away. His words will never 
pass away, nor will they ever fail. And he's also not only the good shepherd, but he's the perfect shepherd. And it's one thing to say, God say, I'm going to do these things, but you want him right there with you. The, the hundred sheep, when the one goes and he goes and finds the one, you want the shepherd that is right there in your presence. Psalm 32 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. God wants them to thirst for his presence. Psalm 31 3 says, For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. That's our petition. He makes the promise that he will guide us, that he'll instruct us in Psalm 32 8. But our petition is. It exactly mirrors that promise. For you are my rock, therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. The very thing he promises is the very thing we pray. You ever notice that's true in our prayer life? The things God's already promised, we keep praying for them. That's not unusual. That's what the Holy Spirit does. We pray the heart of God. So the fact that the apostles needed boldness, God knows that. He promised them boldness, but they pray for it. He promises them peace, but we pray for peace, right? He promises us love, but we still pray for love. So the very things that God promises, we still pray for, and they come about when we are in the presence of the Lord. See, the discipleship of Jesus, the three-year ministry when the disciples walked and talked with Jesus, it was observing and having him in their presence that was life-changing. They could see Literally, now we have, in the Word of God, we have the presence of God. We know exactly that as we pray His Word in the power of His Spirit, praying in the Spirit, as the book of Jude tells us, that we actually are hearing directly from God through His Word in prayer, and His presence is leading us, and we pray for that. If I stay in His Word, and you stay in His Word, and I stay in prayer, and you stay in prayer... We'll hear his leading. People often, I, I, I need to hear from the Lord on this. I need to hear from God on this. You might have to wait longer than you want to. Amen? We're told a lot of times to wait on the Lord. This was a 40-day test that they had already failed because Moses stayed away longer than they expected, didn't he? God hadn't left their presence they left the presence of God. They were to wait on him, wait on the Lord, not just on Moses. Moses is a type of Christ, but they're you know, waiting on the Lord, waiting for him to reveal the direction because Moses went up there to get directions. He went up there to get 10 commandments on stone and all the directions for the tabernacle and all the directions for the forward motion of where they would go next. Those were some pretty big directions. And they're waiting for them, but they didn't wait long enough. Instead, they turned back to the world. But if we stay in prayer and we stay in the Word, even if our answer doesn't come quickly, and in the Christian life, many times it will not come quickly. Because, by the way, God's not in a hurry, is He? The journey is the destination because the journey is conforming us to the image of Christ. Yes, there's the heavenly destination, but the destination of our maturity is the journey. We're continually staying near the Lord, 
staying in his presence, staying in his word, staying in prayer, and he will lead us. Psalm 37, 23 tells us the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delights, he, the Lord, he delights in that man's ways. I like that the Lord orders my steps. Not mankind, not people. The Lord orders my steps. Psalm 80, verse 1 says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. That's the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold Spirit of God that dwells between the cherubim. That the Lord, we actually see both the Spirit of the Lord and the title of shepherd, which is Jesus' title, O shepherd of Israel, you who guide and lead Joseph like a flock. Aren't you glad that the Lord gives us himself as our shepherd, and he gives us his Holy Spirit, his presence that shines forth. It's a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. His word and the presence of his spirit leading us. And you know Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all your hearts. Lean not to your own understanding. We always have our own understanding in the way, don't we? That was, that was one of the things that got him into idolatry. Thinking through, well, if Moses is not going to come back and this isn't going to take place, let's come up with a different plan. No, no, trust in him and all, with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. We want the Lord's presence leading us and guiding us. We know his direction. We know what the direction was. I'm taking you to a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to take you forward. Now, the Holy Spirit, when we have the presence of God, will always have God's will, and yet he'll still direct us like the course of a river, you know, based on the topography of the land, a river will meander and actually all of a sudden, sometimes it'll take a hairpin turn, right? Because the land might slope down all of a sudden, it might take a hairpin turn. Well, the Lord leads us similarly in our own life. Even if, if our heart is right before the Lord, we're, we're in fellowship and harmony with the Lord. We're in his word. We're in prayer. We're in obedience to the Lord. We're walking in the joy and the strength of the Lord. These things are taking place in our life because we're, we're living life in the spirit, not in the flesh. We're walking with the Lord. Then our desires will actually mirror the Lord's, and even still, he will alter our course. Give an example of this. You probably know it, some of you, but some of you may not and may have forgotten. In Acts chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, Speaking of the Apostle Paul, it says, Now when they had gone through uh, Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Now, this is actually an area where Paul is not in any kind of sin. You'll never, God's never going to be displeased that you wanted to go preach the gospel in Henrico or Hanover or you're going on a trip to, to do street preaching in Baltimore. But the Lord will say, great, I've already told you. That's actually something that God's already told us to do. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. We'll be going into Bonaire tonight. I won't be at the first night of VBS because I'll be with the team at Bonaire. We'll be going into Bonaire and preaching. But the Lord could have other plans. 
I could get a flat tire and end up sharing with somebody else. Right? These things have happened. I've had things like that happen in my own life. How about you? Where I was going the right direction because my heart was saying, Lord, I'm going to go and share you with someone else. And God says, excellent, but just not that city. It's actually this city. And he will direct the paths. That's what we have his presence in our life. It's a dynamic, it's a spirit-filled life. We not only read the word and digest the word, but we actually have the Lord continuing to speak to us through the word of God and through that still small voice and through some message you just happened to turn on the radio and a pastor so-and-so said just what you had read that very morning and then you're not done there. You actually call someone up and they send you a verse and it's the same verse and God is speaking and saying, this is what I want you to do. He speaks directly to us. He gives us a direction. But it's always the direction is to grow, is to go to a place that is flowing. What does that mean? This destination we'll look at next. This destination up to a land in verse 3, up to a land flowing with milk and honey. We know the destination the Lord wants to take them to. We know the destination he's promised already. And Numbers chapter 14, 8 says, if the Lord delights in us, uh, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Now, the, the term milk and honey is found many times in the scriptures. I wouldn't say many, but numerous is probably better. It's, fi- it's found quite a few times. Um, one commentator from the 1600s said, even this is back in the 1600s, uh, uh, he said the land, that this term milk and honey, it's a phrase so often heard by Christians, it's not taken seriously. That's what he wrote. It's heard so often, it's just not taken seriously. That it just goes right over people. It, oh, milk and honey, that cliche, milk and honey. It meant a lot. It means a lot. What it means in kind of the understanding of the land itself and what it would mean to the children of Israel from a practical standpoint, from life, it would mean that they would be headed to a land abundant with food. Abundant with food. Ideal for livestock and animals and grazing. Um, It would be the opposite of the Sahara Desert, which is great for camels, but not great for most any other animal, right? One that can actually store a lot of water and go a long distance, but for the mass of uh, humanity and 2 million plus people and all of their livestock, this land was able to support all of them, and it was already lush and green. Long before God would later curse much of the land, and land would actually end up, which actually, as you know from Ezekiel 36, it's reblooming in our lifetime. I went to Israel in February, as you know, and to see firsthand places that just 40 years ago were barren, dry, as dry as this pulpit here is, just as dead as could be, coming to life, and it doesn't even approach what the spies saw when they went into the land of Canaan and saw how lush that it was. A land flowing with milk and honey, and it would have an abundance of wild honey. At this time, it was not, uh, they weren't harvesting bees. This was all of the wild variety, uh, similarly to, you know, just like the, the hives that would be in different places throughout the land. Uh, this wild honey would imply some other very desirable conditions. 
as you know, bees have to, they have to pollinate, so there has to be flowering uh, trees and plants and flowers all around, so it is lush with the flowers, it's lush with trees that are flowering, whether they be blossoms on a tree like an almond blossom and all these different things where the bees themselves would be able to pollinate and take the nectar as well, all of these different plants that were, were growing. The climate of the land would actually be such that would support that type of lush environment. You know, I think it was Mark Twain, I'm, someone can correct me, I'm pretty sure it was Mark Twain said, uh, when the bees are gone, the food is gone. So, um, and if I'm wrong on that quote, I'm, I thought it was him, but the quote stands <laughs> that when the bees are gone, the food is gone. When the bees are present and there's a lot of honey, that's a good thing. You would want that because that means the plants can support the bees, and you see the whole cycle of the biosphere of this area where they're headed. Now, surely the ancient people, they observed that honey was plentiful in these areas. And when honey is plentiful, that means you have a lush area and you have all the thick grasses that the livestock can eat. And, of course, if the livestock, uh, we have one farm in our, our, our congregation, but if you have a lot of livestock that are eating well of the grass, they produce a lot of milk. And milk was very important to the ancient societies. In these same pastures, they would they rich fields for grazing. And again, the abundance of all the trees and the flowers and the bees. And this word translated, it says it would be a land not just with milk and honey, but flowing, flowing with it. Now you think of flowing, you think of like Niagara Falls and the water just keeps coming over, right? It's just flowing. It's a spring. We saw a, a spring there in, uh, in Israel that feeds the Jordan River, which is uh, the most water per, you know, per uh, cubic meter of anywhere there in the Middle East of coming up out of the ground. It just gushes in. It flows. It comes from the Hebrew verb zuv, which means to flow or to gush. And it's interesting that Jesus would then say in John 7, 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart would flow rivers of living water. See, what comes out of us is a result of what God puts into us. Into us. If he places us in a land, if he places us in a place that is flowing with his presence, we too, we not only benefit, but we will then be those that the Lord flows back out of. Proverbs 27, 7. Now you think about, you think about the milk, all the milk, and there's, there's great significance about the honey and the milk. You think about the milk. He said, you shall have enough, Proverbs 27, 7, uh, 27, 27, actually. He says, you shall have enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and the nourishment of your maidservants. See, when there's an abundance of something, it's not just for you. And see, Jesus hasn't just given his Holy Spirit to me. He's given it to me to go give to Bonaire, to go give to my neighbors, to go give to other people. He doesn't just give me a, a 10-gallon some milk and say, hey, drink up, but do not share it with anybody. No, it would be flowing not only for us, but even the scriptures would later, they would know that even the stranger in the land would come in. They were supposed to do good and even clothe and feed and help even the stranger in the land. That it would not just be for ourselves, but the overflow that God gives us. And see, a lot of times in the body of Christ, there is no overflow in people's lives. None. 
They don't have any time. I I'd love to do that. I'd love to help out with Greg Laurie outreach. I'd love to help out with the Billy Graham thing in November. Love to help out with Bon Air. Love to help out with uh, Vacation Bible School. Love to help out with the Chills Ministry. All right, let's do it. I can't. Don't have time. You said you'd love to. Tell me 10 things you're able to fit into your schedule then. Tell me something that's not work that you're able to find time for. Well, then there'd be a list, wouldn't there? That's weird. You found time to do there? How'd you pull that off? You spent two hours in that store? Really? Did you buy it? No, I was just looking around. What do we have an abundance of? Well, I, I, I'd love to give to the Lord. Love to even, can't afford to tithe, much less give any kind of thing. I have nothing to give God, don't have anything to give. Can't do it, can't afford it. On down the list. Oh, I'd love to sing on the worship team. I'd love to help out there. I've got a good, why don't you do it? Don't have time. God gives us this overflow that it would actually be something we give back out. You'll have enough in Proverbs 27, 7, not only for your own food and your own household, but also the nourishment of the maidservants beyond just your own flesh and blood, those that are not your flesh and blood. But of course, in the body of Christ, we actually become one family. So when we don't serve each other, we actually aren't serving our family. You have your home family, and then you have the larger body of Christ, which is one family. Now, Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 2, another kind of application for milk. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. That what? That she might grow. Now, I know that um, Paul writes of, and also Hebrews talks about, not only staying on milk, but also getting to meat. But by the way, no matter how much meat you grow into, you never give up milk either. You still have to always have that sincere milk. It's not only milk, but in addition, you actually begin to eat meat. Now, I do like to eat meat. Last night I ate some pork chops on the grill. But afterwards, with a homemade blackberry pie, we actually had milk. So you don't give up milk. You just no longer are only on milk. But milk is very important. And if you're hungry, then I can't, uh, can't help you there. You got a little, won't be long. I'm actually not hungry, so I can say that. It's good when you go shopping not hungry too, isn't it? Right? You just kind of go in there, make sure you're not hungry. You'll save money that way. But the milk, the milk in the the milk, it was representative of the overflow of the word of God in our life, of the spirit of God in, in our life that God would give you more than enough of him to be an overflow, that you would drink it in, that it would nourish, that it would strengthen, just like the Word of God, just like the refreshing of the Holy Spirit, but it would also be flowing to the point that you would be able to distribute and give it to others, making his name known. Now the manna, when you think about the honey, even the manna, they had received manna not too long before this. Of course, they had not remained thankful in Exodus 16, 31, we were just in the 16th chapter, you know, several months back, but it says that the manna was like white coriander seed, and the taste of the wafers was like honey. That manna before, now manna, by the way, could be repurposed into all kinds. It was the most versatile food the world has ever seen. It could be repurposed into any meal. I mean, we know it's, they cooked all different ways with it, but if you just had to just scoop it up and have it by itself, it tasted good 
without anything else. No salt, no pepper, no sugar, no changing it. It was tasty just as it was. Tasted like honey. And then we know that the scriptures give us a lot of uh, illustrations of what honey means in the context of uh, a metaphor for spiritual things. Uh, Proverbs 16, 24. It says, pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. The pleasant words, the pleasant words that come from the Lord. Ezekiel, by the way, you know that in Ezekiel 3.3 and then John the Apostle and Revelation 10.9, they both ate the word of God. One ate a scroll and one ate a little book. And at both of them, it tasted like what? Honey. It tasted like honey. Both milk and honey, they are both synonymous with actually the goodness of the Lord. Uh, milk is more of the nourishment, not exclusively, but milk is more of the nourishment that comes from the Lord, the overflow that comes from the Lord. Honey is more of the sweetness and the blessing and just that peace from the Lord that, that nothing is like the words of the Lord. Isaiah 7. Uh, turn with me real quick to Isaiah 7. I just want to show you something. It's worth turning to Isaiah 7. You may have always noticed the passage, especially around Christmas time, in Isaiah 7:14, around the Christmas season. This verse will be read, but you usually don't hear anyone read the 15th verse, which is the very next verse. The 14th verse says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know the good, how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Curds are made of milk. It's, it's another word for cheese. If you've ever been to Wisconsin, they make some really good cheese curds. You know, those of you that have ever seen cheese made... Um, so the, the curds come from the milk, or the heavy cream. And you've got the curds, but you also have the honey here. And that Jesus, it says that he would eat the curds and the honey, that he may know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. We see, again, the spiritual metaphor that the milk and the honey are the goodness from God. And that Jesus himself said, I would do nothing that, except for what I saw the Father doing, that the relationship in which Jesus dwelled in, he was constantly devouring the words of his Father. Remember, he would go early in the morning to pray, and he would receive the words from the Lord. Now, you and I, it's, it's, if Jesus would actually, and this is when he received the curds and the honey, which are a metaphor, obviously he did really actually eat those things, just like John the Baptist really did eat lo locusts and Honey. Locusts were more of the meat. Honey is the sweetness. Again, uh, locust there is a similar, it's the meat. It's what we need for nourishment of the body. Honey is the sweetness, that presence of the Lord, that peace of the Lord. But nevertheless, Jesus would literally eat these things, but spiritually speaking, he's receiving milk and honey from the Father. And if he did it, just like Jesus was baptized, though he didn't really need baptism in the same way that you and I do it or to be repent. Jesus didn't have to repent. We are to repent and be baptized. Jesus did it as a sign and a witness. 
and that we would follow in his footsteps and that he would receive the milk and honey from the Father, that we would walk in the same way. We would receive milk and honey from the Father. That's why he said, when you pray, pray thus, my Father, which art in heaven, right? Give us this day our daily bread. It's the same picture. It's the manna that tastes like honey. The honey, the provision, and just like they couldn't produce a land produ- uh, flowing with milk and honey. They were in the desert at the time. I'll take you from a place where you can't make anything grow to a place where I make it grow because it comes down from the Father of lights, down from heaven. The Lord himself gives these things. And so Jesus would eat these things, but not only would he eat from the Father's hand, but the more you're in the presence of God, you actually know good from evil. Did you notice the rest of the verse? He would know how to refuse. He would know how to refuse the evil, and choose the good. Now, this is very important because if the children of Israel don't have the presence of God, after a while, they will not know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. They'll do the opposite, and eventually they do. They will eventually choose the evil and refuse the good. But you and I, we could slip, we could fall, we could drift away if we don't continue to eat of, drink in the milk and honey that comes from the Lord. This is the destination. The Lord wants us to be there. He wants us in this place. Drop down in the same seventh chapter. Stay there for just a second. It's important that you see this as well. Now, this actually, this prophecy of Jesus, it comes in a chapter which it actually talks about the children of Israel when they're judged. Uh, The king of Assyria comes down, and uh, the people are judged. They... Uh, what's left in the land is just a remnant, a small, you understand that the remnant term is used in Scripture quite a bit. It's a small number of children of Israel are left in the land. But notice what God says about them in verse 22. Um, Actually, look at verse 21. So this will be the remnant of the people. Now you and I think of we're living as a remnant of believers in the United States of America, and trust me, we are. There's other believers in the country. Praise the Lord, we've got actually millions of other believers in the United States, but compared to the 317 million people in the United States, it's a shrinking group, in a sense, that we would be the remnants in the land. But look what it says in verse 21. In that day, it shall be that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. You might not have much. A young cow and two sheep, but look at verse 22. So it shall be... From the abundance of milk they give, that he will eat curds, and from the curds and honey, everyone will eat who is left in the land. What God is saying is, even if I give you next to nothing, I'll give you milk and honey. More than your necessary food, my word. That's what he's saying. I'll leave you in the land, but don't worry. Even if Assyrians take you away, and whatever's left, you'll have a couple of livestock, just a couple, and they will produce an abundance of milk. And Jesus would say, look, even if you're just a widow with little mite, I'll feed you from above. I'll give you milk. I'll give you honey. This is a life of faith as well, even for this, um, even for this remnant that would be here. See, the Lord wants us to live in the presence of his spirit. Now, his truth is so important. We have to have his truth. The word, 
the milk, the honey, it's truth. It comes from the Lord. Anything that comes from God is truth. Anything that comes from man is the opposite. But it's not enough to just have truth. God wants us to have the spirit and truth, to receive these things with his presence. See, the children of Israel, they were told, you go up to the land of milk and honey, I'll give you the blessing, but I won't be there. God wants them to figure out that's not enough, Lord. He wants them to come to the conclusion that, like K.P. O'Hannon says sometimes, people that love their Bible but not Jesus. Like, what does K.P. mean by that? How could you love your Bible and not love Jesus? A lot of people love truth, but they don't drink from the Lord. They just love truth. They love more information. They love to know. They can tell everyone, here's what's here, here's what's over here, here's what the Bible says here. But there's no intimacy. There's no presence of God in their life. There's no power of God in their life. Psalm 116.9 says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. In the 16th verse, that's 116.9, the 16th verse, it goes on to say, O Lord, truly I am your servant. It's not just walking the land, but truly serving close to the Lord. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. That's in the 17th verse. In the 19th verse, and the courts of the Lord's house in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Not praise the things that are there in Israel, not praise the city, but praise the Lord. The Lord's name is more treasured than Jerusalem, more treasured than the land. Jesus said in uh, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This light of living, this milk and honey that we're drinking in, but it produces not only life for us, but actually light bursts forth. All of these things God gives. You can only get these things. You can't buy these things. You can only receive them by staying in the presence of the Lord. And the Lord wants the children of Israel to realize, if I remove my presence, even my promised blessing, you'll come to realize will be empty. You'll have the stuff that I promised, but you'll not have me. And without me, what really is anything worth without God? He holds all things together by the word of his power. Last section we look at, our decision. Our decision. To the children of Israel, they realize what Moses has said. They get the full weight of it on them. At first, they might hear it, and it doesn't quite. Then they replay in their head. I think what I just heard was the Lord would say, he's got a beautiful destination for us. He promises direction, but he's not coming with us. And you you know what their response is? They weep and mourn. That's a good response. That is a good response. The Scriptures talks about the weep and howl, those of you that miseries are coming upon It's good that they recognize that they don't want to lose God's presence. See, remember, the the most wicked of the people, they were thrust through by the sword, right? 3,000 fell. The most defiant, the most 
you know, shake their fist at God's ones. There's people in the world that do that, that shake their fist at God. You know, I, I, I'll read a tweet from uh, Ravi Zacharias, or, and immediately there'll be a group of atheists respond. All kinds of responses. And just the hatred, again, I, what's, what's odd, they hate something that they say doesn't exist. Hmm. Why are you so fired up about something that doesn't exist? Because it does exist. He does exist. He's everywhere, and you can't escape his presence. But nevertheless, the most defiant, the most rebellious, they died by the sword. Everybody else, they got, ugh, they had to drink in the gold dust. And everyone experienced some of the judgment, but not the full wrath. You and I have experienced some of God's chastening, haven't we? But not his wrath. And his chastening leads us to what? Repentance. It's chasing leads us to repentance. But here, God does something ingenious. He doesn't mention punishment. He says, I'm going to give you everything you want, but I'm not coming. And that's enough to make everybody say, hold on a second. Even if we had the land, even if we had the milk and honey, even if we had all these things, even if he drove out our enemies, we don't trust us. Isn't that true? We're still stuck with us. And us messed up bad just a couple of days ago. Who among us will rise up, Paul said, after I leave, ravenous wolves will come from yourselves. You yourselves will turn ugly. And you, if God is not flowing through us, it won't take long before we'll actually mess up the blessing anyway. That's the fool's gold. Satan would try and tell you, all you need to do, you just go to church, believe in all the right stuff, but don't get too fanatical about this. Don't go overboard with this thing. You go overboard like Tim and some of these other weirdos, you're going to lose it. Actually, I'm, I'm tame compared to people I think are just giants in the faith on, on the earth right now. Those in China, those in Iran, those in South America, those in other parts of the world, even here in the United States, I feel like a wimp. Nothing. And the Lord wants them to realize, if I had all that stuff but don't have the presence of the Lord, what do we really have? Something that's a vapor, appears for a little while, and vanisheth away? But we want to experience the truth of God with the Spirit of God. Jesus said the Father is looking for those to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Not just in truth. A lot of Christians have truth, but they don't have the life in the Spirit. They have truth. And some of them aren't Christians. Why? Because they'll hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Some of them, they, they did want all of what God had to offer, but they never really wanted the Savior. Who is who? I don't know. I'm not the Lord. I know some will escape, yet as by fire, and they truly were saved, but they had no desire for any spiritual growth. And I, I know some, according to the Scriptures, aren't saved at all. All growing in the same. Jesus said wheat and tares, all growing together. That's why as apostles, he said, don't rip them up. Just keep planting. That's what I do as a pastor. Because I don't know all, I, I usually know definitely the wheat, but I don't always know tares. Because I'm not God. And Moses didn't either. So he's like, here's the deal. You guys are going to get the blessings, but God's not coming. If he did come, he'd consume you all. And they weep and mourn, which is a good thing. Do we want the presence of God or do we just want the blessings of God? Do we want what Jesus, do we want Jesus? 
or what he can do for us. So many pray like crazy when there's a desperate need, but they never cultivate a close relationship with Christ. Their prayers are emergency prayers. Their prayers are, oh, we we need intervention. I need healing. I need this. I need that. What about just walking with him? He's already saved our souls. Is there anything greater than that, really? No, of course not. Sad, but today many would be okay with only having God's favor and blessings. Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. It's one thing to read that, but if we would meditate and come to that place. Because there's very, 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 very few that truly could say one thing I desire is to be in the presence of the Lord. It's in the list, but it's not the one thing. It's not the pearl of great price. Remember in Luke 10, 39, you had Mary and Martha, but it was Mary, it said she sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. You can't hear Jesus, you have to sit at his feet to hear his word. What do they do? How do they respond? Well, they, they're told they're a stiff-necked people. Sometimes, by the way, preaching is pretty tough, isn't it? Moses doesn't hold back. Whatever God said, he told them. I love all of you, is what he's saying, but you're stiff-necked, and you're going to be consumed if God comes with you. If he doesn't come, you get your, you get your land, you get your blessings, all's good. Everybody okay with that? They weren't. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit convict, pierced their hearts and they wept and mourned. And they're like, this is bad news. We cannot have God not with us. We cannot see the fire and the cloud go away. He must stay with us. And so they begin to strip off their ornaments or not apply them. Either way, they, get, they take the ornaments. What are ornaments? Well, they had earrings of gold and silver and necklaces and all these different things. And to them, it was a symbol, not that those things were in and of themselves wrong, but for them at that moment, it was a symbol that they wanted to take off any vestige of the world and cast it aside and plead for God's presence. Because they were going to a land flowing in milk and honey. By the way, notice that God didn't say they were going to a land flowing with gold and silver. God's into living things. Living They took off all the gold and silver and laid it aside so they could weep and cry out to the Lord and show him, we don't want, we just made a golden cap, we don't want this stuff. We want you. And there was a contrite, this was actually a big revival service is what it was. And God ignited it by telling them, I'm going to give you everything you wanted, but not me. And that broke their hearts. Isn't that great? That God broke their hearts that they realized what they were rejecting was they loved, later the Pharisees would be this way, they would love the law, but they wouldn't love the lawgiver. Right? They would love the law, but not the lawgiver. And they loved what God could do, but not the Lord, and they realized what had taken place. They threw these things off. Are you willing to throw off unimportant things? They were. 
It wasn't life or death whether they had earrings on or not. It wasn't life or death whether they had an anklet of gold. Those things weren't going to make or break their life, but the presence of God was going to make or break their life. God might be talking to you about all kinds of things that are just silly waste of time, that are just wasting your time. And so God's saying, are you willing to throw these things off to be focused on me? Beyond that, those silly ways of times can become idols. John said in 1 John 5, 21, the very last verse of the epistle, little children, keep yourselves from idols. The very last thing he said. Why? Because idols are insidious. They start small, but they get big. They would be problematic if we didn't lay them aside and focus on the Lord. See, God wasn't only speaking to the really, 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 really rebellious people. He was speaking to those who had just taken for granted his presence. That's a lot in the body of Christ. They're not really rebellious. You're not doing the things you used to do before you're saved. You're not out until four in the morning, you know, just going crazy. You're not committing crimes anymore. You're not doing anything. You just take for granted God. That was this group. They just took for granted his presence. Eh, He'll always be there. He loves us. God says, no, I will not always. If you take me for granted, I'll remove my presence, is what he said. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run the race with endurance. That is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of faith. It's not just laying aside the hindrances. It's turning to a singleness of focus. If you just lay aside the hindrances, but don't look unto Jesus, you're no better off. You'll just pick them back, right? But when you lay them aside and then look up as the children of Israel, then you can go up to a place of milk and honey. The people respond with contrite hearts. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. He saves such as have a contrite as have a contrite spirit. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, It is doubtful whether a man, whether God can ever bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. You hear that? He said, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. You know, God, God, God is so different than us. We... We get, um, we, get com- we get completely um, worked over by people's emotions rather, rather easily. We can be manipulated by people's God is not manipulated by our emotions. You can weep, and God is not. God will know what you're weeping is. He'll know the real core of it. And if it, he'll, he's not manipulated by a sad face, like, I can't have another candy bar. That, that does not move him at all because he sees deep in the soul and he loves us enough to say, no, I know what you need, not what you want. True? He's not a man. He is not moved by our emotions. He's not moved by our rational thinking. He's not moved by our plans. He's not moved by any of that stuff. He looks at the children of Israel and says, I love you, but I will not take you on these terms. And they realize he's right and they are wrong. He doesn't even tell them, take, 
He doesn't even say, I want you to do this, that, and the other. He, they by themselves, they realize that they have to surrender and submit themselves. Now, he does tell them to take off their ornaments, actually, but their heart. He tells them an outward exterior thing, take off the ornaments, but they know, they know what he's really telling them is take off your will. Take off your will. Lay down your will and submit to mine. And they weep and mourn. And he's telling them with no uncertain terms without saying it, I want you to want my presence. By the way, church, God wants us to want his presence. Yes, he's telling us to cast off the things, to cast off the hindrances, to lay aside every weight, but he wants us to want his presence. And the only way you can want his presence is to choose, that's why our decision, we have to choose to wait on his presence and get in his presence and remove anything that we already know he's told us to remove and then wait a little longer until he shows us things we're not even aware of because there's that too. Amen? 